So whenever the story of Mary comes up, one of the particular issues that is almost always focused on, probably the single most uh, significant issue that is focused on is, did she really conceive the baby without a human father? Was she really a virgin? Or is that some sort of figurative language uh, that the, the ancients used? And I chose that Old Testament passage, the story about Ahaz being given a sign from God to kind of muddy the waters even more. Because we think, okay, well, you know, this was supposed to be the most amazing, one of the most amazing things that has ever happened, that Mary was a virgin and gave birth to this child. And yet, then we hear this story in the Old Testament about Ahaz being told that a virgin will be with child and, and, and give birth to this boy, and it will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And yet, in that story, it's very clearly something that happened then, because he said... Uh, Isaiah says to Ahaz, before that child is old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, the two kings that you are frightened of will be wiped out. It was very much a message for that moment at that time. Now, so wait, were there, were there two virgin births? So Jesus's wasn't so much special or was, was that just kind of a, uh, really, they were talking about a young woman and this is the real story. Uh, the fulfillment of that prophecy was actually Jesus. I throw that in there just to, to muddy your minds because this gets argued on both sides of the issue. Oh, absolutely, you and you must believe that it was a virgin birth or you're not a true believer. To the other extreme is, oh, pfft. no, of course it wasn't a virgin birth. That doesn't happen. So, And people get really worked up on both sides of this issue. And this argument has been going on for centuries. In fact, I would imagine that this probably began the day that Luke let someone read his gospel for the first time. And he, they read the story and was like, really? Did, did that really happen? Is that what it was? Because... Tom Wright, a British theologian, uh, I like what he notes. He says, the ancient world didn't know about X and Y chromosomes, but they knew as well as we do that babies were the result of sexual intercourse and that people who claimed to be pregnant by other means might well be covering up a moral and social offense. The ancients knew that as well as we do. So from the very beginning, there have been people who have been skeptical about the virgin birth. As if that is the most difficult thing to believe about this whole story. I understand being skeptical of a birth without a human father. But come on, what about the guy with wings that shows up? And by the way, he's from heaven, an angel from God. What about the proclamation that this baby is going to be the son of God, the, the ruler of the universe? This baby is going to be that thing's son. That God is going to get stuffed into 
a baby. When we get caught up about whether or not Mary got pregnant from a human father, we minimize the astonishing claims of this whole story. And we also minimize Mary's role in it. When we focus on that, she becomes essentially just a tool for God to use to to get this baby onto earth. Rather than being the profound model for human faith that she is. Mary, like I said with the kids, is right up there with the most courageous persons in the history of our world. When we open our minds to the enormity of what she was asked to do, then our hearts open up to following her example. Like Mary, sometimes we are asked by God to act in ways that seem beyond our ability to handle, seem beyond our capabilities. Risk, even great risk, is at the heart often, is at the heart of faith. And Mary reminds us what can happen when we step up in courage and trust God. But in order to see her courage, we first have to understand and see the enormity of all that is put in front of Mary. And the very first thing is the appearance of the angel. Now, uh, this one even has a name, Gabriel. And we don't know if he actually had wings. A lot of uh, artists through the centuries have portrayed this scene and the Gabriel is often portrayed as having wings. But I think the point that the artists are trying to communicate is the fact that this is not a normal being, that they're, that they're trying to present the, the alienness of this being that appears to Mary. Mary knew immediately that she was in the presence of some phenomenally strange being. Then there is the greeting that this strange being gives to her. Verse 28. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary's reaction to this is perfect for our skeptical and cynical age. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered, what kind of a greeting is this? She had numerous reasons to be highly suspicious about what Gabriel was up to. This is a messenger from God who was telling her that the the God of the universe has noticed her, has even noticed her, let alone favored her. Mary lived in the middle of nowhere. That's why Luke says uh, in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. 
Luke did not expect any of his readers to know where Nazareth was. It would be like me telling a New Yorker, yeah, I, I, was, uh, I grew up in Gig Harbor. I mean, I would probably, even if I said in the state of, Wa- I, even if I said Gig Harbor, Washington, I'd probably have to say the state, not D.C. I've even had to do that for people in California. I'm from Washington. Oh, where the White House is? No, the state. What? Literally, I've had that experience. Anyway, so Nazareth was, so what Gig Harbor would be to a New Yorker, Nazareth was to the, the people to whom Luke was writing, and, and even the whole region of Galilee was to the Roman Empire. It was basically at the edge of the world. And it was also pretty far removed from the center of the Jewish faith. The center of the Jewish faith was the temple in Jerusalem. And this isn't even close to that. In fact, Gabriel, about a year before this, you know, we hear this little bit about uh, your cousin Elizabeth is six months pregnant. Well, when that birth got announced, because the baby she was going to give birth to was John the Baptist, and Gabriel actually also came and announced that to uh, announced that in in scripture, but that was to his father, the priest Zechariah, who was in the temple in Jerusalem when that word came. So this other birth to John the Baptist was was to a priest in the temple in Jerusalem. That makes at least a little bit more sense than what's happening here. In this story, Gabriel is announcing the most important birth in the history of humanity. This is the the angel Gabriel announcing that God is coming to visit earth. And it's to someone who is about as far away from every center of power and prestige as she could be at that time. But Gabriel doubles down when he sees that she's a little skeptical about this. He says, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, which means God saves. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Gabriel doesn't make it easier to understand. He makes it even more difficult. He's, he is announcing to her something that, that Israel as a nation had longed for for centuries, the coming of the Messiah. In Greek, the Christ means both in, in Hebrew and Greek. It means the anointed one of God. Gabriel has told this young woman who lives in a speck of a town on the edge of oblivion 
that she is going to give birth to a baby boy who will become the most important person in history. I once held a Stradivarius violin. I was scared out of my mind. This guy said, here, hold this for a second. And I knew what it was. And I was, I, and then he, he knew how terrified I was. And so he walked a couple steps and then he came back and he said, by the way, that's worth more than you or your entire family will ever make in your lifetime. Oh, thank you. I was scared out of my mind because I knew how valuable this was and how fragile it was. Can you imagine when, when Mary was the mother holding the most valuable, most precious thing in the universe, knowing that she was entirely responsible for this? In response, Mary, I believe, just gets to the very first question out of probably the thousands that were in her head. In verse 34, uh, how will this be since I haven't even been married yet? I'm a virgin. How will this be? So yes, the, the whole virgin birth part is an issue. But again, compared to some of the other things that are going on, is it really that big of an issue? that we get focused on that so much, I believe this came out simply because that was the most immediate thing that came to her mind. I like, uh, well, excuse me, and then (laughs) Gabriel doesn't really clear things up. He's a little light on the specifics. Uh, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Okay. Okay. Let's move forward then. I like John Calvin uh, has an interesting, uh, actually the contrast between John Calvin and and William Barclay. Calvin was a 15th century reformer and William Barclay uh, just a century or so ago, a Scottish uh, author, writer. Um, Calvin writes, the operation of the the spirit would be secret, I think is, is he thinks what, Gabriel is getting after, as if an intervening cloud did not permit what would happen to be beheld by the eyes of any human. William Barclay has an interesting take, and he says, it may well be that the New Testament stories of the birth of Jesus are lovely poetical ways of saying that even if Jesus had a human father, the Holy Spirit of God was operative in this birth in the most unique and special way. Now, Luke writes it very clearly as a story that does assert that Joseph was not the biological father. And that put before Mary another whole set of issues. Would Joseph believe her? (laughs) Would the village believe her? And if they didn't believe her, then what? All of this is placed before this young woman 
very young. Everything that Mary has ever known and relied on, everything that she has probably dreamt of or hoped for, is being put at risk with what Gabriel is setting before her and asking her to do for God. Now, in a poem about that specific moment, after all this has been presented to Mary, Denise Levertov writes in her poem, The Annunciation. We know the scene, the room, variously furnished, almost always a lectern, a book, always the tall lily. Arrived on solemn grandeur of great wings, the angelic ambassador, standing or hovering, whom she acknowledges a guest. We are told of a meek obedience. No one mentions courage. Other than Denise Levertov, of course. And I love that. I love that she points that out because I think that courage is exactly what we are supposed to see here. Mary's tremendous courage. She can't know the entirety of what she will face, but she certainly knows enough to know the enormous risk that she would be taking to accept what God is asking her to do. And even knowing that, and even probably being terrified, she says, yes, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. I think that sometimes pastors, preachers, Christian personalities downplay the risk of faith, the risk involved in being faithful to God. Paul has a proper understanding of it when he writes to the Philippians, my dear friends, you've always obeyed, not only when I've been there, but even now when I'm absent. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's not often the message that I preach. Hey, everybody, go out there and be afraid and tremble, and we'll come back next week. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. I think Paul is saying exactly that if we are truly aware of the enormity of God and the risk of following Jesus, We will be, at times, afraid and trembling. There is incredible risk involved. God sometimes calls us to act in ways that seem beyond our abilities, beyond our capabilities. Certainly, the acts may not be as monumental as carrying the Savior of the world, for nine months and giving birth. But still, most of us have had or will have experience of sensing 
God's will and yet also feeling like there's no way we can do it. It's just too much. In those moments, in these moments, Mary becomes one of our primary models of faith. Luke's story reveals to us both another example of God's practice of choosing to work with persons whom others overlook and reveals an example of a courageous response to God's call. Listen to Daryl Bach, a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Mary reflects the person whom God unexpectedly chooses to use. She brings no outstanding credentials to the task and lives on the edge of the nation. She brings nothing on her resume other than her availability and willingness to serve. And even more than being willing to go where God will take us is realizing that God can help us overcome whatever limitations we bring to the effort. Luke wants us not only to see Mary as the mother of Jesus, but also as an example of faith. And Tom Wright, uh, again, the British theologian writes, when God takes the initiative, it is always a matter of love. Love which will care for us and take us up into his saving purposes. Mary is to that extent the supreme example of what always happens when God is at work by grace through human beings. God's power from the outside and the indwelling spirit within together result in things being done which would have been unthinkable in any other way. None of us will be asked to uh, birth and care for the Messiah. Mary already took care of that. And yet, like Mary, God may show up in our lives and call us to something that seems too much for us. The second stanza of Denise Levertov's poem, The Annunciation, goes like this. Aren't there annunciations of one sort or another in most lives? Some unwillingly undertake great destinies, enact them in sullen pride, uncomprehending. More often, these moments, when roads of light and storm open from darkness in a man or a woman, are turned away from in dread, in a wave of weakness, in despair and with relief. Ordinary lives continue. God does not smite them, but the gates close. The pathway vanishes. With stories like that of Mary's, God is encouraging us not to let the gate close, not to let the pathway vanish, but to go through the gate, to go on the path. And God encourages us through Gabriel with these words, for nothing is impossible with God. I'm going to take a little bit of a risk here. 
Um, this morning as I was going through this, I felt this sense that I should do something that I don't normally do. Um, so in a moment, I am going to give a space for silence, for quiet, and for each of you to, to listen for God. I just had a sense that there may be somebody here, there may be several people here this morning who might be feeling like they're being asked to do something that feels beyond their abilities, uh, beyond their capabilities. I'm not going to ask anybody to report. I'm not going to ask anybody to raise a hand or anything. This is entirely between each of us and God. But I want us to to take a moment and sense, is God trying to say something to us, to ask us to risk something in faith? I mean, believing in God at all, believing in Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God, is a risky thing. So I'm going to give a moment of silence. I'll say amen, and then we'll we'll move on. But in this, and it won't be long, but just in the next moment or two, listen and see if God is speaking to you at all. Amen. Saying yes to God often means taking a risk, even great risk. Like Mary, may we have the courage to take the risk of faith. Amen.